around 119 million people or a quarter of Americans, let that sink in for a second, live in areas of the U.S. where rates of cancer caused by air pollution exceed the United States' own Environmental Protection Agency's current upper limit of acceptable risk. Environmental experts call these places sacrifice zones. Hi, welcome to The Shrinks on Third, our psychology and social justice podcast. I'm psychologist Cindy Ariel. And I'm psychologist Julie Mayer. Come on in. Preserving the environment is extremely important, Julie. I agree. We all have to live on the same earth, so it always makes me feel a kind of way when people use it as a trash can. You know, they throw their bags of fast food or drink cups out the window of their car. Oh, my gosh, Cindy, I have never understood that. What must be going through someone's mind when they toss trash out a window? Do they really think it's okay to do that? Why? I don't know, but apparently some people do. And people do this all over the place, pretty indiscriminately. But it is a fact that it's more likely to happen even more when there's already a bunch of trash around. I suppose if there's already trash around, the person feels more justified in adding to it but they should be feeling like cleaning it up. I mean, I'm struggling to understand what makes people so uncaring. Do they have some prejudice where they just don't care about the earth and the people on it? Well, it's a little bit of a stretch, but environmental racism has to do with discrimination in the places and ways we as a society choose to throw our most polluted activities. Statistics show this is usually where communities of color, especially poor ones, live. Unfortunately, Cindy, that is not at all surprising. It's a kind of prejudice. For sure. Those are the neighborhoods or geographical locations that we, as a society, see as less valuable. So that's where we're most likely to set up garbage dumps and hazardous waste landfills. And industrial parks, incinerators, oil refineries, sewage treatment plants, dirty factories, diesel truck and bus garages, and radioactive waste storage areas, just to name a few. That sounds horrible. They're either targeted for being placed there to begin with, or because nobody given the choice wants to live next to such things, they end up being poor, marginalized neighborhoods for people who can only afford to live there. Right. These places aren't just unsightly and undesirable. They're our most toxic places to live, literally dangerous and poisonous to humans. Many people living in areas targeted for the addition of such a site or that find out that one exists nearby have fought hard to protect themselves, their families, and their homes, but it's an uphill battle. Right, because mostly the people with more money, they don't want those things near them. They don't want to compromise. They don't want to have any of that stuff around them and their families. They don't care if a toxic waste dump makes other people sick. So in addition to the racism we see in housing, education, employment, and everywhere else, there's racism in how we manage our environment. 
The sites that make the most pollution are sites that we all want and often need, like the dump in the factories, but nobody wants or needs to live next door to them. And people with the means not to have to, well, they don't. So when a question comes up as to where we should set these things up, the solution is usually found in places where there will be the least resistance. And even if the resistance is not less, the high-level connections, and let's face it, the money to fight or to bribe someone to move it is. Once again, the poor and marginalized get the short end of the stick. Yeah, around 119 million people or a quarter of Americans, let that sink in for a second, live in areas of the U.S. where rates of cancer caused by air pollution exceed the United States' own Environmental Protection Agency's current upper limit of acceptable risk. Environmental experts call these places sacrifice zones. Wow, what a term, sacrifice zones. We're sacrificing people's lives who live there. That is awful. It is. Sometimes people don't have the information they need to know the impact or risks that certain additions to the neighborhood might bring. Sometimes it's given out, but not in the language of the people who need to read and understand it. Right. It might be in English when they speak Spanish, or even if they speak English, it's in complicated legalese so that it's very hard to understand if you are not a lawyer. But even when they do get the information, they often can't protect their own interests, even if they can read it, because they don't have the means to pay someone to protect them. They're trapped. The shame of it all is that society doesn't protect them. They're considered the least of us, and they're not cared for the way we should care for our fellow citizens. Clearly. Residents of these communities die of cancer and other illnesses more often and earlier than people sometimes just a couple of miles away. Many of the people affected may not know it, but the Environmental Protection Agency does know it, and they allow it to happen. In other words, the government agency set up to protect people makes decisions on who can be sacrificed to illness and death. And of course, the sacrifice zones generally are filled with people of color and people with few means to fight it the already most vulnerable populations in this country. We've known about environmental racism since at least the 1980s. Well, not us personally, but the government itself actually studied this and found definite evidence of communities of color suffering disproportionate negative effects from toxic landfills near their homes. They found that there were so many instances of unwanted hazardous pollution sites in communities of color it became clear that this was not an accident. Decision makers at all levels intentionally created toxic hazardous waste sites in these communities. Fortunately, many grassroots environmental justice organizations have formed to work towards environmental protection and social change in their communities. The mostly white environmental organizations fighting to protect forests, endangered animals, air, water, and resources did not connect their fight to a fight for people. That seems strange to me, but they did not address the environmental challenges happening to people of color, to people. Finally, in 1990, 
a growing environmental justice activism movement confronted the environmental justice groups that were already active and that clearly had racial bias in their policy development. And they also confronted the fact that they didn't include people of color on their staff or their boards, and they didn't address the problems people of color were facing with toxic contamination in their communities, even though they labeled themselves environmental justice organizations. As a result, several of the groups came on board, developed environmental justice initiatives, added people of color to staff, and began to consider environmental justice in creating policies. So they were environmental organizations, but not environmental justice for people. Right. They weren't protecting people. Yep. At least people of color in toxic communities. Mm -hmm. So environmental justice activists continued pushing and brought their concerns to the government, which also in 1990 led to the creation of the EPA's Office of Environmental Equity. And the year after that was the three-day National People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit, the first one, in Washington, D.C. And the great news is that it was very well attended with hundreds of environmental justice leaders from the U.S., Canada, and other places coming together on the issues for the first time, along with people in groups that could really move environmental justice forward. People like Jesse Jackson and the head of the National Resource Defense Council and the Sierra Club. What's important about it is that there were mainstream players now in environmental protection. The summit produced the principles of environmental justice and the call to action, very important documents for the environmental justice movement. Groups like the National Resource Defense Council have since been very supportive, often helping environmental justice organizations with advice and resources and expert testimony when needed, joining in on their litigation sometimes. In 1994, during the Clinton administration, environmental justice finally became a federal government policy. Feels like not that long ago to me, but better late than never. Wasn't that long ago. Federal agencies were directed to address issues of environmental justice in any new policy or program and to look for ways to prevent any more harm or discrimination in any federally funded programs focused on health or the environment. Environmental justice is, of course, still an important part of working towards a healthy environment for everyone, especially those who have lived and worked around pollution the most. They and their families' health is at risk as a result. Yeah, just because federal agencies were directed to address it doesn't mean a lot has changed, right? Environmental injustice has been referred to as a moral scandal, and that name really resonates. Unfortunately, these days, moral scandals seem to rule. There are so many. In terms of environmental challenges, many of the so-called sacrifice zones are in places like Texas and Louisiana, but they're also in other states like New Mexico, Illinois, Kentucky, Tennessee, and our very own Pennsylvania. Oh, not Pennsylvania. Most people don't imagine that the government doesn't work to protect us from hazardous environmental situations. We'd think it would. Communities near factories, refineries, or old military bases that release toxic gas have much higher rates of illness and death than others, obviously. And even when the government knows about the risk, 
big surprise, it's often kept quiet. Yes. Companies now have to report their pollution levels or their emissions, but of course, they give low estimates, and there are other policies that try to deal with the problems, but it's systemic and basically needs an overhaul like so much else around us. Yeah, nobody should be living near these sites, especially without knowing it or choosing it. And who would do that? Who would want to live in a sacrifice zone? Why are there people who we feel able to decide for that they're the ones we can sacrifice? It's just so wrong. It's horrific. One of the organizations we can turn to locally is phillythrive.org. It's a group here in Philadelphia that is organizing for environmental, racial, and economic justice. And on a broader scale, the climatejusticealliance.org organized people to lead the People's Climate Marches in New York City and D.C., and they work toward environmental justice, among many other things as well. Yeah, check them out and consider helping out. Exactly. Thanks for listening today. You can find us at shrinksonthird.com and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Shrinks on Third. Until next time, take care.